And so if you will follow with me, we'll look and read the first 17 verses. So here it goes. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed. In all the world. What a designation. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Also, that is, who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Will you pray with me? Our Father, the words of Jesus come to my mind. He who is of God hears God's words. Thank you for your words. And may even the reading of them, because of the sheer power of your word itself, bring conviction upon our hearts. And may this great, indeed, Lord, this greatest of letters in your word be matched by the great outpouring of your power and your Holy Spirit in the days in which we peruse it and may you yourself be blessed by this God even as we sang not for 
not for glory or vain recognition, but for you. It's your gospel. May it go forth with power starting right now. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, this is the greatest book in all of the Bible, the book of Romans. The greatest book in all of the Bible. Aren't you glad to get into it? I know some of you are thinking, let me see, I've been around for how many years? Uh, how come it, you're, you're only getting at it now for, after 15 years, you're only now preaching it? It's a good question. And uh, I have to tell you that uh, the reason is because it's the greatest book in all the Bible. And even after 30 years of preaching, I still approach this book from a preaching perspective with a lot of, um, uh, I don't know how to put it, unworthiness. I just don't feel worthy to preach this book. I, I just, every time I come to it, I've thought about it over the years, and I've thought, oh, I just don't feel ready for it every time I come to it. I love the book. It is the greatest book in the Bible. And yet, that's probably why I have... It's been such a daunting thing for me to approach this book because it's the greatest book in the Bible. And yet we need its message now more than we have ever, ever needed it. I think generally, as well as in this very church at Sailorville. In all of my Christian life, now 32 years of it, I have never seen the gospel of God so cleverly disguised by so-called gospel preachers as it is to this moment. And I'm talking churches nearby, not just nationally, not just around the world. I'm not just talking about the Benny Hins that are out there. We all know, I hope, that they're charlatans, right? Paul calls them in 2 Corinthians masqueraders. Earlier in the same epistle, he says, he calls them peddlers of the word of God. He said to the Galatians, if anyone comes to you with another gospel, meaning there is such a thing as a so-called good news gospel, which is disguised, masqueraded, peddled, if anyone comes to you with another gospel, then the one I'm preaching to you, let him be damned. I didn't say that. God says that. By the Spirit of God through his servant Paul, the same one who wrote this letter to Romans. Praying prayers for salvation, morality preaching, easy believism, health and wealth, and even some covenant-based preachers that have their people claiming absurd things like, well, I've always believed. Nobody has always believed. That's not even possible. So if you're in that category, realize that you have been deceived somewhere along the line, perhaps even unwittingly so, that is unintentionally, you have been deceived into thinking that you have always been a Christian. Mark my words, no one has always been a Christian. Let's say that together. No one has always been a Christian. Do you believe that? That's a true statement. And the scripture verifies it. And when they do that, when they say things like that, they are making a mockery out of the new birth. They're making it a sham. And the power of the gospel and what it does intrinsically within the hearts of people who truly do place their faith in Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, there are some of you here that are not saved even though you've prayed the prayer. 
Or you were raised in a godly, Christ-honoring home and you think for some reason, somehow or another, you know, you just sort of, by osmosis or something, you became a Christian, but you're not a Christian because you've not been born into God's family. You've not been born again. That's why I'm preaching this book. Fishing with nine guys for eight days, everything starts to stink after a while. (laughs) We had a great time. And uh, because there were so many of us, I was able to get into boats with different guys almost every time I fished. And it afforded me opportunities with many of them to have Q&A sessions. And these guys were, would question me on various theological issues. And if and you guys know who I'm talking about. A lot of times, instead of just answering their question, in fact, almost every time, instead of answering their question, I would put it back on them. And I would say, well, what do you think about it? What do you think the answer is? And their answers were quite interesting. Sometimes spot on, other times spot off. And the reason I asked them that is because I wanted to know not only, now listen carefully to what I'm about to say because this applies to all of us. I wanted, them to, I wanted to know not only what they thought, but listen carefully, how they thought. Everybody has a thinking. Everybody has a theology. All of you have a theology. That's what you think. The question I have is how you came to that conclusion. And so eventually we would make it back to the word of God. Which, by the way, there is nothing you can talk, there is nothing to talk about on this earth that doesn't find some application here. Or even a direct reference here. So, I marvel though how easily Christians, oftentimes due to our sin natures, are tempted even to reason on a myriad of subjects apart from the Bible. And I would say, if you reason on anything apart from the Bible, you're on dangerous territory. Even on trivial things. The message of Romans declares this. When I stand before God the judge and only justifier of men, and I will stand before him someday, right? It will not do me any good to stand in the filth of my own righteousness. I need his righteousness in me. That's what Romans is declaring. The old ditty is true. Run, John, run. The law commands, but neither gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news The gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. The first Bible study I ever taught was not in Romans. It was in 1 Timothy. Group of people, some unbelievers, some believers, and I was just a new Christian. I was like like a month older than the Lord. I'm teaching the Bible study. I had no business, but I was doing it anyway. And this one woman, a friend of my wife's, was there, and she, she was digging in. She was not a Christian, but she told, for weeks she would tell us about her great theologian husband, and he knows the Bible like the back of his hand, and when he comes here, he's really going to be able to teach all of us. And I thought, okay, and we finally showed up. And so I said, okay, well, let's get started. Let's go to First Timothy, and 
he was over there and he was going back and forth and he was over there near Genesis and made his way back to Revelation and in between and, and it, it became very embarrassing because he was supposed to be such a scholar. And uh, finally, I just said, um, uh, where are you at? And we might be able to help you get to it. He said, we'll never, I'll never forget, he said, I'm lost in Romans. And the guy next to him was also a new Christian. He said, that's a good place to be lost. The truth of the matter has been many a famous men and women have been found in Romans. Take Augustine. In, in 386 AD, Augustine was in the garden of a friend of his in Milan. He had lived a notoriously uh, immoral life with many other women and just, and yet contemplating God and whether he should become a Christian and things like that. He's really under the vice of conviction. He was in this garden and he heard some little boy singing a song that he'd never ever heard before. And, it, and, the, and the part of the song kept saying, take and read, take and read. The song had nothing to do with scripture, but he, thought, he took it as a sign from God and there was a, a copy of God's word, a scroll of some sort that was nearby. He picked it up and read in Romans chapter 13 and verses 13 and 14 where Paul concludes, so put off these things and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and all of its lust. And well, in Augustine's own words, he said, no further would I read nor had any need. Instantly at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. He was, became a Christian. And the renowned theologian that he would become would soon follow. Over a thousand years later, Martin Luther, an Augustinian Roman Catholic monk, many of us know his story, professor of the University of Wittenberg, and he was an Old Testament scholar, so he was under constant conviction. He was known to go in to the confessional to confess his sins and literally take hours and hours to do so. He would be walking out through the nave and suddenly remember, oh, there are sins I forgot to do, and he'd go back and confess it. Priests literally fled from him when they saw him coming because he would literally take up their whole day. He was a very pious man, but he didn't love God. In fact, in his own words, he was hating God. Because he was so much trying to attain personal righteousness and could see that the ladder, the top of that rung was so far, it kept getting farther away for him. Until he began to study this epistle. And verse 17 was so powerful to him. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And these are his words, quote, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because it, I took it to mean that righteous, that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is, listen to this, is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. 
The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Unquote. Martin Luther. He would later say this for all of us. He said, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. The late James Montgomery Boyce, pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Alluding to Luther's testimony, he said that the righteousness of God in Romans 1, Luther came to discover was a gift, not a threat. Over 200 years later, John Wesley was transformed by this very same epistle. In fact, he was literally listening to somebody read Luther's commentary on it. In fact, here are his words. It was about nine o'clock, a quarter to nine. While he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I'm not going to overwhelm you with quotes, but just a couple more. Calvin, John Calvin said, when... Anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. And Godet, the great Swiss commentator, finally said, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of this book. Do we want revival? Okay, the apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, hence the book. He was a big city guy. We all, those of us who study the book of Acts, and we see Paul, he'd hit the main metropolises, and then the gospel would sort of fan out from there. And so, big, out of the big ones, no doubt the gospel would go to the little ones. And no city was bigger than Rome. It was the capital of the world at this time. All roads lead to an expression that exists to this day. But all roads led from Rome as well. That's important because the gospel itself had gotten there ahead of Paul. And in fact, it had such an impact. Look at verse 8. Paul says, I'm I'm excited because your faith is proclaimed around the world. The only way that could happen is from Rome, from those same roads that led to Rome, that led out of Rome, Christ went with his gospel. We don't know how the gospel came to Rome. The Catholics would tell us that Peter took it there, but there's no history to affirm that whatsoever. We know just from this reading, Paul had not been there. But if you were, there's a little tiny line there, you just kind of miss it when you read through all these names and all these cities. When Peter preached the gospel at Pentecost, there is a litany of cities from around the world that came to that great event. And it tells us right there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 10, it says this. These are the names 
Phygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome. So it, it, it's not a stretch to simply reason that amongst these 3,000 that were saved at Pentecost, they, you know, they didn't just stay there and live in Jerusalem. They went home and went with the gospel. In fact, the Roman historian Suetonius wrote that the emperor Claudius eventually, a few years later, expelled the Jews from Rome. And you want to know why he did that? He did that because of the rioting that was taking place amongst the many synagogues over a certain man by the name of Christus, which most historians think is a corruption of the word Christ. So these were Jews at Pentecost. They go back to their synagogues and they start saying, it's fulfilled, the Messiah has come. They preach the gospel and a church is born out of it. And it was growing enough that the emperor himself got involved and kicked the Jews out. Apparently not entirely because there were still Gentiles in this church. But Paul And Paul somehow knew this. I mean, I'd tell you, one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had took place about about 25 years ago. East Iowa Bible Camp is a little camp on the east side. Some of you are familiar with it. I preached there a high school winter retreat. I was as sick as I've ever been in my life. Had nothing but a couple of little kids. There was a little chapel. There's a little room right for the pastor or the preacher right off the chapel. I literally spent 90 to 95% of my time in that room vomiting. I was so sick the entire time. High fever, miserable as you could possibly get. I came out for one reason only, and that was to preach. I'd preach, and I'd go back in. It's never been, I mean, I, I, well, I don't ever want to have an experience like that again, unless God would use it like that. I preached on hell on the final night, and a number of young high schoolers trusted Christ as Savior. Three years later, I went back and preached at the same retreat and met a young woman who was amongst those 10 or so that trusted Christ. She had gone home, witnessed to her family. Her parents were converted. A church was started. Her dad, three years later, was one of the leaders in a new church. I had no idea any of this stuff was going on. Well, the Apostle Paul had this going on all the time. This, this probably came out of Pentecost, no doubt. But So even though Jews were kicked out of Rome, there was, and the Roman church was very Gentile-ish, so to speak, at the same time, there, Paul is talking in this letter. He'll talk to Jews and Gentiles because they're all Christians. And they're meeting in homes, and they're having an impact on the world. And while he passionately desired to preach there, his heart, Paul's heart, was in church planting. Going where no man had gone before. If we go to chapter 15, we'll get to there eventually. You can read it for yourself. I want you to read this book. I want you to study this book. I want you to get ahead of me. Go with me. Do whatever you have to do over the next several weeks. But get into this book. And you'll come to chapter 15 and you'll, Paul, Paul will say, I want to go where no one else has gone. I want to I preach where Christ is not known. And the truth of the matter is, Rome was kind of a stopping ground for Paul. He really, really wasn't thinking so much about staying there. In fact, it was a stopover on his way to Spain as he kept carving out new ground. 
I just have a couple excerpts in Romans chapter 15 to give you. He says, I hope to see you in passing, watch this, as I go to Spain. I, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Notice, he's already thinking beyond Rome. The reason I tell you this is because this is about, a, this is about as impersonal a letter as we're going to read in the New Testament. When he... When, he read, when Paul writes to the Galatians, when he's writing to the Corinthians, when he's writing to the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, that is, I mean, he's dealing with personal matters. You've got, you, you got his heartbeat come, just bleeding all over the place, 2 Corinthians especially. But not here. On, on the bookends, you've got some personal notes here. We just read through some of them. And even if you read chapter 16, it's like he actually knows some of these people. He did know some of them who had made their way there. But he hadn't been there. And it's the gut of this epistle, this letter, is not personal. It's theological. It's powerful. The gospel is both simple and profound, and this gets into the profundity of it all. So, he trailed, he, Paul was a trailblazer with truth. No greater truth did he ever leave, lay down, than this epistle we're, we're going to be studying. And he starts right off, look at it, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's the word doulos. It could be better translated slave. That's what he, he identifies with the people there. The Roman Empire was made up of 600 million slaves, and 600,000 of them lived right in the city of Rome. And undoubtedly, they would be the lower echelon, of course, and those are the ones who are more open. Undoubtedly, many of them had trusted Christ. And so he comes to them not as, yes, he is the apostle, he refers to that, but he, he comes first as a servant, as a, I'm a, hey, I'm a fellow slave. His desire, I have bowed the knee to Christ Jesus as my Lord, as my King, I'd like you to do the same. He says, I'm called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. That phrase of God, 69 times in this book, that phrase is in there. The gospel is God's gospel. More specifically, it is Father God's gospel to us. I mean, look at some of these phrases. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who descended from David, according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power. Verse, uh, verse eh, look at some of these other verses. Verse 7. To all who are in Rome, who are loved by God, called to be saints. Verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I pray for you. There's all kinds of mentions here that this is Father God's book about his Son. The gospel is that God, it is the gospel from God. It's his plan from eternity past, foreshadowed in the Old Testament by the prophets, fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ, the resurrection being the capstone of the gospel, making it the good news, and, his, and verifying, giving veracity to his sonship. But the good news has to be proclaimed, right? Right? Jesus served us here on earth. He serves us now from heaven, ever living to make intercession for us. And he has given to you and me 
the job of proclaiming him. Look at verse 5. He says, this is part of his purpose of the gospel. He says, to bring about through whom we have received grace, that is through Father God, grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, honestly, have you ever thought of Receiving the gospel, the good news, as an act of obedience? This isn't a type error. He, he virtually says the same thing at the end of Romans chapter 16. Trusting Jesus Christ is you obeying God. How do you obey God? You're not doing a good work. You're obeying his word by submitting yourself to it, embracing what Christ has done for you. The job of every follower of Jesus Christ is to proclaim him on earth. That those who receive it might become more than just believers, but actual followers of Jesus. Paul is set apart for this. And in verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Jew first, also to the Greek. In it, that is intrinsic within the gospel, the righteousness of God is declared to those who believe. From faith to faith, the just will live by faith. So what I want to do, and this is just an introduction, here, here, are, my, here are five goals that I want to give to you this morning for our time in this letter over the months to come. Number one, that we might grasp the depth, the darkness, the despair, and the desperation of our lostness apart from Christ. And we'll see that very early on. No one comes to Jesus without realizing their dilemma. It isn't just, oh, I'll take Jesus. He's not just an add-on. You must see your lostness. And Paul has given himself completely in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through the gut of chapter 3 to lay this truth upon us that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Secondly, that we might exalt glory and shout for joy over the greatness of of God's gospel. Do you ever shout for joy? I've been fishing. And I caught a big one. This dude was nearly 40 inches long. Now some people think he gets bigger every time I tell this story. When I caught a fish previous to him, almost as big as him, I mean, we're on a lake, and when, I, when that thing got in the net, I literally jumped for joy, and I shouted for joy. I couldn't believe I caught the thing, let alone it got in the boat, because Lucas made me lose one the day before. He did. He can tell that story. But I was going, yes, 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 I got one. And everyone, everyone around heard it. I mean, they, I think they probably thought, well, we better go somewhere else because we're not going to get one now. 
there are greater fish than that to be caught. And there is much greater joy in catching men than catching fish. And it's worth shouting for joy every time it happens. And so it is my great desire and goal that we might exalt and glory and shout for joy over the greatness of God's great gospel and salvation. By the way, did you notice who, who Paul longed to preach the gospel to? Did anybody catch that? Verse 15, he wanted to preach the gospel to them. Who was them? The Christians in Rome. Next time somebody says, well, you know, your church preaches the gospel a lot. Hello, that's what we do. We preach the gospel. Don't be ashamed of that. Paul says, the Christians need the gospel. You need the gospel. I want to preach it to you. And yes, he was no, no unquestionably thinking the greater part of Rome and the gospel there. But remember, it was a stopover for him. He wanted to preach to them. He wanted to solidify them. So that their joy and their glory would rise as ours needs to. Thirdly, that we might become passionate followers of Jesus, spreading his gospel wherever we go. He said it there in verse 8. I'm so happy to hear that's going out from you. He said it to the Thessalonians. He says, he says, I don't even need to talk about you. People are coming to me. Out from you, the word of God is being trumpeted. That's what I want for Sailorville Church. I believe it's happening, but it could happen in much greater measure if we would grasp the greatness of God's gospel and realize the impact we can individually and corporately make upon the world that God has given us to live in. Fourthly, that we might experience his, quote, spirit of holiness. Did you catch the Holy Spirit referred to there as the spirit of holiness in verse 4? That's how Jesus is affirmed as the Son of God in his resurrection. That we might experience this spirit of holiness as we learn to truly walk in the spirit. Now that's going to come in chapters 6 through 8. Huge section there. And what it means to walk in the Spirit. And finally, that we might one day stand before our justice of the peace and receive from him a reward. Not deserved, but gladly given by a faithful father. That is my hope for this church that all of us would yearn to stand before the just and only justifier of the peace. Because therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll stand before him someday and it would be my, my passion and my desire that you personally will stand before the living God and receive a reward. Not deserved, but gladly given by a faithful father. Because all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Have you ever read that? You will. Because we'll get into it, but not until chapter 14.
Yesterday, Lucas Bear's little eight-year-old boy wandered off into the nearby woods with his friend. When he didn't return, a very worried mother called the police, as well she should have. A search party was formed. And finally, after an hour of searching, they found the two boys deep in the woods, playing, looking for squirrels. And when they found him, as I understand the story, Nate Worsham looked at him and said, Owen, people are looking for you. And Owen said, who? And Nate said, well, your folks and the police. (laughs) And Owen said, oh, I'm in so much trouble. I'm going to go to jail. I got Lucas' permission to share this. It seems that everybody else knew he was lost, but him. And there are some of you here this morning that are absolutely just like those two kids deep in the woods, absolutely lost and not having a clue. You are a sinner. You are separated from God. The wrath of God abides upon you. And if you die in this state, you will go to hell and you'll go there forever. But God, the righteous judge, has provided the means by which your sins can be forgiven. Your unrighteousness taken away, his righteousness given to you so that you'll stand before him someday, complete in Christ, good place to be, Sin's forgiven. You're lost. And you don't even know it. Do you know it now? It's worse than going to jail. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In this very epistle are the sacred words you hear often from this pulpit. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a man believes unto righteousness and with the heart, the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Do you want it? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are righteous and you are just and you are the only justifier. We can never justify ourselves. Oh, we try. But only if we receive Jesus can we have peace with you, righteousness applied, sins forgiven, heaven secured. Oh God, help us to understand our lost 
estate, our lost condition. And to those, for those of us who have been there in the lost place and have been rescued from it, may we glory and shout for joy for what you have done in them, in us, and what you will do in others. As I pray, Lord, you would place within us a spirit of evangelism, outreach, so that we might not take this and stick it under a bushel, but lift it high from this hill at Sailorville and beyond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.